The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. How is someone's life better when they cross paths with you? Hey listeners, welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we're joined by Valerie Burton, who is a life strategist. She is the CEO and founder of the CAP Institute, which is the Coaching and Positive Psychology Institute, where she trains personal and executive coaches in actually every U.S. state and has trained around over 21 countries around the world, which is pretty incredible. Valerie also is a graduate of the MAP program, which is the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology at UPenn. And I share that because I'm really excited to have her today because of the way that I came across Valerie, which was about a year and a half ago, I was looking into who I would want to put on my list of people who were expansive to me. So people who inspired me that I would see as, you know, kind of part of my path into becoming more of who I wanted to be as a person and a professional. And so I started Googling and looking up, I was like, who has gone to this master's program? And who is also Black who's gone to this master's program? And so I ended up coming across Valerie on LinkedIn and was so happy to find someone that looked like me and was also doing so many of the things that I wanted to do. So, you know, as life normally has it, you set your sights on something or you see something and all of a sudden, you know, roads open and I was able to get introduced to her and Jackie and I said, we would love to have her on this podcast. Um, there's so many amazing things that she's doing. So I'm just really excited to have you here, Valerie, and can't wait to talk more about you and your most recent book. I am so glad to be here with you and Jackie. Great. I'm so excited. And Leah, thank you for finding Valerie. Um, I loved looking through your website and then reading your most recent book, Let Go of the Guilt, which we will surely discuss today uh, with our listeners and share some of the goodness that comes from that. But similar to Leah, um, Valerie um, really speaks to my passions and what I desire in my life. And a lot of her life history kind of coincides with where I've been as well. And so I find you really relatable, Valerie, and really just a role model for me. And so again, just so thankful to have you here today. Well, I'm feeling so good. Y'all are <laughs> talking up my head here. <laughs> so, okay. So we'd love to know, I mean, there's so much to share about you and and we want you to share share that but um you know i think one of the things that draws jackie and i to you is that you're a life strategist and a coach and we both are too and we see the power of it and part of what um what we see in that power is the ability to help people live the life they've always wanted to live uh and we know everybody knows there are points we give up on our dreams there are points we get reconnected to them And just being able to see some of your history and your past and being able to create the life that you want, we'd love to hear what are some of those defining moments that have led you to actually live this life that you're in now? I think there's several, but I'm very connected to purpose. Like, I always want to know why, why am I doing this? Or why, why does this exist? Like, it's, I've always been that way. So I wanted to know my purpose. I was. I started my career in marketing and public relations after I finished graduate school in journalism. To tell you the truth, that actually had to do with a lack of confidence 
believe it or not. I appeared to be very confident, but I didn't believe that I would get hired by a TV station as a reporter. And so I went for what felt more accessible, which was PR. And I had done PR internships. I'd interned in the governor's office for a hockey team, but that's not actually what I wanted to do. So PR for me was great, but it was it, it was an opportunity for me to practice my entrepreneurship. So I ended up being a marketing and PR director for an accounting firm, but then I uh, launched my own PR firm. And after a few years, I mean, it was persistent, this feeling of, I can't figure out what my vision is for this because it didn't excite me. It didn't feel like what it was I was meant to be doing. And I prayed about it for a couple of years. It wasn't like it came instantly, but I was at a journalism convention and I just had this epiphany while I was walking across the street to a Barnes & Noble, which was that I was supposed to inspire others to live more fulfilling lives, that I'd do it through writing and speaking. And what's significant about that is, one, it was the day I discovered, here's why I'm here, here's my purpose. But also because I had known for some time I wanted to write. Um, I had that vision when I was about 20. Again, another epiphany. One day, you know, my first semester of grad school, you know, you're going to write books. I didn't know what kind. I didn't know if it was novels. I had no idea. But I loved books as a child. Like, I just, I grew up an only child. My only sibling was born when I was 20. <laughs> so, books were like friends to me. So, that all, always felt right. And I tried writing books. And I had attempted two other books before I got my purpose. It was once I understood the why behind it, I started writing within a few weeks of that epiphany. And I wrote my first book in about two and a half months. And being entrepreneurial, I self-published it. I started my own little publishing company, published the book, and had this vision that a big publisher would pick it up. That was my that was my vision and my goal. I knew once I knew my purpose, I knew I was going to eventually transition out of having a PR firm to to doing this work. And that's uh, that's what happened. I published it, and the following year, Random House picked up uh, my self-published book and and republished it. We, changed it a little bit, not a lot. They kept the same title and everything. And so th that was really the pivotal for me where I began doing the work that I do now. I have the chills listening to you share this because I've had some of the similar epiphanies. I also, you know, wanted to do journalism and I didn't do it because I thought I would never get, I would never make any money was what I was told. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yes. <laughs> PR isn't what you do when you don't, when you want to make money. Yeah. Um, but but I, I love hearing, you know, it's like you prayed about it and you just were walking one day and had this random epiphany. And then it just feels like the doors kind of opened up and you were you went straight down your path. What about for people who stop themselves? Like I, I was almost just imagining like what if you hadn't have walked down any of these paths? Like how do, how do people think about approaching their purpose without fear? Or is that even a possibility? No, I think fearlessness is a myth. And I think it's a myth that keeps us from moving forward when we feel fear. Because we're looking at someone else we see as successful or they've overcome whatever this thing I'm afraid of. They're fearless. That's why they're successful. Nobody is fearless. <laughs> we're all afraid of something and usually multiple things. It's being able to learn to manage that fear and not seeing the fear as a stop sign. Seeing it as an opportunity to grow, to overcome your your fears to practice courage and bravery, to be willing to be imperfect. That has been, I think, my absolute biggest lesson. 
That's exactly what I was thinking too. Like, what is the learning? Because so many people are scared, you know, and as, as life coaches, we see that fear is probably the number one blocker to anything that you want to achieve in your life. What are some practices that you really lean on when you're speaking with people who are trying to overcome fear? So throughout all of my books and the work that I do, I teach self-coaching. It's great to have a coach, but your coach isn't there with you all the time. Coaching is a way of thinking. It's a way of life. Coaching has changed my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't have started a company that trains people to coach other people. At every stage, whether it was what I just described, which was before I started coaching, or it was going through a divorce and maintaining hope that I could still have the vision personally that I wanted, even though I was in already in my mid to late 30s when I went through divorce. It's a lot of self-coaching. So with fear, number one, it's noticing it, being aware, like not ignoring it, not pretending you don't feel it, being willing to examine it, I think is really a big piece of it. And it's okay. It's okay to be afraid. It's not okay to let the fear take over and make your decisions for you, but it's human. And it's not always a bad thing. I mean, sometimes fear pops up because it needs to, because it's warning you about something. But typically the fear we're dealing with, uh, with people with coaches is a fear of, well, there's four core fears. There's, there's fear of failure, which is the one we most often think of, like it's the worst thing in the world. Then there's the opposite, the fear of success, because there's a lot of responsibility and high expectations that come when you're successful. So it's that pressure of, can I keep succeeding? Can I keep succeeding? <laughs> right? So sometimes we don't go for the bigger thing because that pressure feels, we're too afraid of that pressure. And then there's my core fear, fear of disapproval, <laughs> right? Fear of rejection. You keep your dreams small because you won't have to ask for help. You won't have to risk that others might not agree, might reject your ideas, might um, think something that you think is just so terrible. And then there's fear of losing control, which is around uncertainty. And certainly over this last year that we've had, I think even if fear of uncertainty wasn't your core fear, <laughs> at some point, all of us have experienced that fear of losing control, because when things are totally beyond your control, and you have had this illusion, and I call it an illusion, that you were in control of everything in the first place, it can be um, it can be very overwhelming. So being aware that the fear is showing up and being able to call it out so that it doesn't immediately take control of everything you're doing or not doing, and then asking yourself, okay, so... What is it that I want? What do I need the courage to do? Asking the kinds of questions. You know, my mind when I started my PR firm was actually, um, I remember turning in my resignation. And, you know, it's, it was exciting leading up to it. I was typing the letter. I'm asking family and friends, what do you think of this? And I went into my boss, who I admired greatly. And uh, she was managing partner of the firm. And I actually made the resignation partially a proposal, like I wanted to do work for them consulting-wise. I went home, and that night I was trying to go to sleep, and all that was in my head was, what if I fail? What if I'm too young? What if I don't know what I'm doing? What if, what if, what if? And what I learned is I had to answer the questions. What if I fail? 
well, I guess I'll go get another job. What if I'm too young? Well, maybe I can collaborate with some people that have more experience. Well, what if I don't have enough experience? Well, I guess I better learn as quickly as I can. Like to, the worst thing that was going to happen under my circumstances at that time, because I was 24, <laughs> was I'm not going to, it's not going to work and I'm not, I'm going to have to get another job. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be worse off because I will have already gone for it and I'll figure out how to do it next time. I knew I was an entrepreneur at heart. So once I answered the what if questions, the fear dissipated. Mm-hmm. You, I, I'm thinking, Val, because I, I want to take some steps back before we stay with this. Um, something you said that's really important that I personally had this experience. I hear about it a lot. People saying, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what this bigger thing is. And so I feel like a failure. I feel lost because I don't have it yet. Can you speak to that experience that you've seen with your clients and for you so we can start to dispel the myth that like, you know, everyone's supposed to know or that there's some huge thing you're supposed to be doing? One, you're not a failure, especially as it comes to purpose, because you're probably living it to some degree already because it comes so naturally to you. You just haven't articulated it. You can't help yourself. It is who you are. So your purpose is about how you serve the world, how you make a positive impact in some way. And it's not a job. It's not a role. It is the answer to the question, how is someone's life better when they cross paths with you? And when you think of it in that way, it's a lot easier to answer the question. But we should be asking the question because the reason a person might feel lost when they don't know their purpose is because your purpose is like a compass and it points you in the right direction, whether in your career or your relationships or your finances. It gives a why to why you're doing what you do. And it's simple. It's not, it's, it's not this long, you know, it's not two pages. It's a sentence. You know, like I said, mine is inspiring others to live more fulfilling lives. Somebody else, it might be teaching or illuminating the truth or building bridges or connecting people. I mean, it's something that you just do. If I looked at you when you were four or five, I would already see glimpses of your purpose because you've been doing it. So I think that's the case for just about everybody once they articulate. When I look back, I'm like, it wasn't just me reading all the books. It was that I spoke very easily, so much so that my mother would play a game with me sometimes and say, hey, Valerie, let's see how long you can go from the back seat without talking. <laughs> my record was two minutes. So <laughs> not talking that I speak professionally, that, you know, speaking is just a part of what I do. So when I got that the purpose was inspiring others to live fulfilled lives, the vision of that was, and I do it through writing and speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thinking about your life purpose and inspiring through writing and your background, something that you talk a lot about, and, and Leah and I love this concept, this concept of seasons, like seasons of life and how we are always evolving and we're always growing and we're moving forward and things happen in different seasons of life and they're all for learning and growth and prospering. So when thinking about your 13 books that cover so many of the topics that, that we explore on this podcast, how do those 13 books equate or align to the seasons of your life? Well, certainly I, I, I've grown with each in each season. And typically I teach from a place I've come from, usually fairly recently. Um, the last two books, interestingly, I taught from where I was. 
which was a totally different experience. And so the books, the books freed me from challenges that I had. Oh my goodness. That's been amazing. <laughs> that's but much, incredible. Harder, much harder to write, much harder to write. Um, but the results I've, I, I feel like my last two are my best. I can't, I, my readers might not say they all like different books. So they'll be like, no, no, it was this one or that one. But as a writer and as somebody who really wants people to be coached through my books, they're inspired, but I'm a, my whole thing is practical inspiration. Like, yes, I want you to feel inspired, but then what are you going to do? <laughs> right? Because I, I haven't done my job if you're just inspired, but you're not translating that into change and to action. So the earlier books, uh, the first one, I was 26 when I wrote it. And it was this, the subtitle of the self-published was 50 Ways to Enhance Your Everyday Life. And I was very intimidated by the idea of writing a whole book. I would literally like open, <laughs> like open a book. Like, that's a lot of words. Like, how did they write that many words? Like, how much can I say on the topic? <laughs> so I wrote that first book in longhand. I have the entire books in a box somewhere here in my basement on legal notepads because I tried to type it on the computer and I would get stuck. Like I would just, and I would keep doing a word count, you know, <laughs> it was very not productive. But if I just wrote it in curse, I thought I can this, and I can't imagine doing that now because my thoughts come so rapidly, but it was 21 years ago. So, <laughs> you know, we were all writing on, on notepads much more often and that's what got me unstuck. You got to figure out what gets you unstuck. After after I wrote it all out, me and a former coworker who was a friend typed it. You know, the second book was about three or four years later. So that's the longest I've gone between books. And each one, really, that one was around purpose. The next one, what's really holding you back was getting unstuck. And it was about how someone, a coach had asked me that question. I was defensive. I've had books that the publisher... <laughs> asked me to write because I had written a column about it or, you know, it was something that came up and they're like, this really resonates with people. That doesn't work as well with me, even though I, I still write a good book from it. I like my books to come organically. I don't, I don't like someone to ask me to write something. And then, you know, uh, about, I started coaching in 2002, 2005, I discovered positive psychology. And then it was, uh, I guess, uh, 07 when I applied to the grad program at Penn. And so my capstone became the book that's been my absolute best selling book. So from that point forward, I always was incorporating the research of positive psychology into my book. So that was a big part of my evolution as a writer. I was so grateful after going through the program, realizing that, okay, I haven't said anything that goes against what the research says. <laughs> but I love knowing the research and making it practical for people. But I think what happened for me in this last, uh, these last two books, I always want my books to get better and better. I like being challenged as a writer, because otherwise, why keep writing? And so I really began digging for, okay, what haven't I talked about that I know people struggle with, and it, it holds them back from their vision and, and what they need to be doing. But maybe it's something I struggled with. And I'm ready to let go of it. And one of them was time, the book, it's about time, the art of choosing the meaningful over the urgent, and then uh, let go of the guilt, you know, stop beating yourself up and take back your joy. So that's been a fun process. And I this is the first time in at least 10 years that I have not had a book 
that I have a deadline to write. Mm-hmm. And I've done that intentionally. I, I just, it's like, I'm going to slow down. Cause at one point I think six years in a row, I wrote a book every year. Wow. So tell us about with let go of the guilt, your most recent book, how did that free you? I knew that when I got married and uh, I became a bonus mom and then our son came along, you know, I told you I had kind of the epiphany that I was supposed to write books when I was 20. And part of that was I knew I wanted a a fun, meaningful career, but I also wanted flexibility when I had a family. And I I was struggling with figuring out how I'm going to do both of those things the way I wanted to do it. And so... I had this vision from 20 that I would write books. I would have a business that I could run from home. And I got to over 40 before this whole vision came together. And I was feeling guilty every time I would go on a speaking engagement, which was typically it's overnight. It's not like I was gone for weeks or anything like that. And I was like, what is this all about? And what I realized was I, I said something to my, my husband one day as we were dropping our son off. And I wasn't working from my office space, but our office was literally the building was next door to the preschool. I could see my son's playground from my office. <laughs> right. And it was like three minutes from home. And I said, I feel so guilty. We dropped Alex off. I feel so he's like about what? And I start describing it. And I'm like, well, there's so many moms at home in our neighborhood. I feel like, well, maybe I'm supposed to be home. Mind you, I had changed my schedule to three days a week. I didn't even work on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which made me more efficient and my business actually grew, (laughs) which is kind of interesting. And he said, didn't you say that was your vision? Like you wanted to be an author and have this business and have a family. And I was like, oh yeah. And so I was like, I got to let go of this guilt. Like I, I had a vision. It's taken me a long time to get here. How can I let it go? And I began talking about it sometimes at speaking engagements. And when I bring up guilt, women in particular, you don't even have to ask them what they're guilty about. You just have to say the word. And it's like, (laughs) and I was like, oh my goodness, it's not just me. And then I began to wonder, is there a guilt gender gap? I began doing a lot of research around it. And indeed, there is a guilt gender gap. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it's how we are wired. Women tend to be more empathetic. The research shows men are less empathetic until they're in their 50s. We're very other-focused. Guilt tends to be an other-focused emotion. Have I harmed somebody? (laughs) Even though the other person might not be thinking about it, we're thinking about have I harmed my children, my family, my coworkers. And I think we, um, we know from research we are more likely to be perfectionists. So what does that mean? We have these standards of what it looks like to do something wrong, not doing it right, not doing it right. And what is guilt? Feel like I've done something wrong. So this was, uh, for me, it was very transformative, but I was excited about being able to help other people let go of their guilt. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. 
work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. You talk a lot, um, Val, about <clears throat> the different things that cause us guilt. And what was interesting, uh, you know, is I was thinking, you know, we both thought about what caused us the most guilt. And for me, it's a lot around, um, you know, exercise, which I know was one of the top ones. Yes, that was up there. <laughs> <laughs> and then productivity, which comes back to work. And, you know, I'm always asking myself, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And the answer in my mind is always, nope, you're not doing enough. You need to do more. So Val, it's so funny because we talked earlier about fear of success, fear of failure, right? As you move towards your purpose and you had created this whole life purpose for yourself. You're like, I want to be an author, have a family, be happily married and all of these things come true. And then you still feel guilty. And so I'm just curious, like, what, what is in there? Why do we still have the guilt when we get all the things that we want? So this might have been my biggest epiphany of the whole book. Happiness is a risk and guilt is safe. So I thought that was just when I first heard it, the craziest thing. How is happiness a risk? Uh, that's what I do. I help people be happier, live more fulfilling lives. <laughs> I've never, ever thought of happiness as a risk of any sort. Happiness is what we all pursue. In fact, we know that we pursue happiness for its own sake. Nobody has to explain why do you want to be happy, right? You're pursuing a relationship or a job or a promotion or whatever. More money. It's typically because you believe it will make you happier. So how could it be a risk? And what I realized is that happiness is a risk because if we're truly happy, is it going to stay around? Like if I get too happy and then I fall from that grace, if, if it's too high up there, that's a risk. Like, can I handle the disappointment? And so oftentimes we will throw some negative in there. For some people, it's a bit of drama. <laughs> For others, it's some other negativity. It's being critical of everything, anyone. And then for some of us, it's guilt. It's a way to say, well, it's not that great. I mean, sure, Val, this was the vision for 20 years before you got it. But now that you're there, it's not It's not all that great. Because look, you know, maybe you really shouldn't be doing all of that. <laughs> this was huge for me. It was... Um, it resonated. And sadly, I think many of us have done it as a protective mechanism and also because of our own life experience. And I began really digging to figure out what, is this a pattern I developed? Why? And I realized it was, it was out of my own childhood. And for me, 
there had been multiple points as I was growing up where it felt like life was great. Everything was great. I didn't think anything was going to change. And then I felt blindsided by something. So, you know, the first time was when my grandfather died and I spent all my summers with my grandparents. They were like a second set of parents for almost three months every year. My cousins were there. It was the best element of my childhood were my summers in South Carolina with my family. And I, it never crossed my mind that that would change because when you're a child, you're not thinking that. And this continued. My grandmother then died a couple of years later. My parents then separated two years later. We lost our home two years later. I mean, it was just, it felt like every couple of years, the rug was being pulled from beneath me. And I think that even not realizing it, what I learned was don't get too happy. That's about to happen. I remember being in my early 20s, having just gotten out of school and so excited for life and what I had accomplished and literally being afraid something was bad was going to happen, that I was going to be stricken with some kind of disease or get hit by a car. I mean, it was awful or somebody was going to die. When my husband and I connected and then got engaged, I would not verbalize that I was afraid something was going to happen before the wedding because I've been waiting all this time. So many of us will find something to insert when things are going well in order to protect us from the possibility that they won't keep going well. And for me, that was guilt. There's research, right, that we stick to what's negative because we're, our brains are wired to really see the risk and and stick to that rather than really stick to the joy and stick to the positive. So we know that we are wired this way, but at the same time, we do have the choices, right? Like we have the choice and we can decide, can I handle this disappointment? I probably can. It's a survival mechanism to look for the threat. I mean, it's not all bad because... You should prepare, but you shouldn't spend every day of your life dousing your joy with guilt or any other negative emotion. For me, I had to just let it go. I had to be very intentional about finding ways to notice when it was happening and let it go. Yeah. And one of the things I want to call out just for our listeners about let go of the guilt is you make a really good distinguishing point between authentic guilt and false guilt. And authentic guilt is when you actually do do something that was wrong, that was a crime or something that was that was actually wrong. Or you, you, you yelled at your kids and the, well, there was no good reason to do so. Yeah. And it could be anything from small to big, but you did do something wrong. And that is where, you know, you have to apologize and make amends and, and reshift and refocus to align your values of behaviors. Right. But, um, false guilt is, is false, as you say, right. It's the negative self-talk that we tell ourselves. And so when Leah and I were talking about our own false guilt and I said to Leah, I was like, I don't really feel that much of false guilt. And I'm saying, I don't know. I don't know. But then I realized I do because I use the word should a lot. Yes. I should have done this. I should have called this person. I should have made this, you know, for dinner tonight, whatever it is. And I love how you say to replace should with could. I could have done it because then it gives me ownership to look at it and say, oh, I could have done this, but I didn't. And that's okay. But I chose not to. But I chose not to. Right. 
Well, then there's like the connection because I, I know you mentioned Brene Brown in this in this book around foreboding joy. You know, the connection of guilt and shame, and like should is connect feels so connected to shame for me too, right? I should have done this. I am a mistake, right? I I you know instead of I could have done this, and I chose not to. I made a mistake. I did something. And part of the reason Jackie and I wanted to talk to you at this point in time is, you know, with COVID and the shift that all of us have had in our lives, I, I, and I think we all have seen people feel more guilt than they felt before, right? I should be, you know, running a marathon this year. I should have lost 30 pounds if I'm at home. I should be with my kids more because I'm at home. I should be working harder because I don't have my commute. How can we, you know, as we think about guilt and a lot of this is false, how can we move through that guilt? Like what, as Jackie said, what choices do we have to start letting that go? I think that this past year has produced a lot of guilt. You hear a lot of uh, parents talking about the guilt, especially if their kids are schooling from home and they're having to work from home and they can't give them all their attention. Um, and then there's the guilt of good fortune too. If you didn't get sick, but somebody else did, if, you didn't lose your job, but your coworkers did. You know, people hiding. I noticed this summer, people hiding. They don't. They're not posting about their vacations uh, because either one, they don't want to be judged that they took a vacation, and two, they don't want to feel like they're flaunting that they were able to take a vacation because, you know, economically, so many people have have suffered losses. So, what I talk about in the book is a coaching method, a process. I call it Peel. And you first have to pinpoint your guilt trigger. What are you feeling guilty about? Examine your thoughts. Like, did I do something wrong? Because that's a yes or no. And I, I have a process. If you did do something wrong, there's a process for that. But if you didn't, then it's so important that you exchange the lie for the truth because you're telling yourself something that's not true that's causing you to feel like you did something wrong when you really haven't. And then list your evidence. What is the evidence that, no, I haven't done anything wrong? And so this is about us having thought awareness, us noticing what we're saying to ourselves. One of the most simple things you can do to kind of interrupt the guilt is just label it. And this is based on some research called affect labeling. But it's just when you feel the guilt, just say to yourself, that's guilt. And all that does is it it interrupts your thought pattern so that before guilt hijacks everything, (laughs) And has you apologizing, doling out uh, money, you know, not speaking up, whatever it is that, you know, you're going to do because you feel guilty, right? Because guilt, guilt says you owe. So whether you actually are guilty or you feel guilty, if guilt is taking the lead, it will take actions to compensate, to punish, right? Because if you owe, you've got to pay a consequence. This is... I believe the most important piece of this whole puzzle in this book, it's not just that feeling guilty is ugh, like who wants to feel guilty. It is that guilt will take over. It will, people will guilt trip you. You'll say yes. When you really mean no, Um, you will do things that you otherwise would not do. You'll make yourself smaller than you are in order to make other people feel good. Cause somehow The guilt says you owe, therefore you don't have the right. It robs you of your rights. So really noticing what the guilt is doing is what's so important. I was um, something, it's funny you ended up saying this, but something that I noticed 
that I had not noticed and that I think is really important um, when it comes to work. You know, this year I, I work in, in learning and development and, you know, speaking to colleagues, but also speaking to people all over the place at all companies. Guilt has flared up so much at work. And the other thing that seems to flare up is burnout. And so, you know, you're seeing more and more people who are edging closer to this feeling of, I've got nothing left in the tank, right? And one of the things I realize that I personally do is say yes, because I feel guilty. And so guilt, what I recognize actually is this morning, I realized that guilt has driven so many of my yeses, and it's also driving my move towards being burnt out. And it's counterproductive. And it's like, I'm trying, you're right. It's guilt is saying I owe. And so I say yes. And then guess what? I end up with the load of feeling anxiety, stress, and burnout. You bring up something for me, Leah, around perfectionism, um, because you talk about this in the book a little bit, Val, how there is an upside of guilt. Yes. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, it's not all bad. <laughs> um, so one, I mean, there's a reason we feel guilt. It keeps us from doing the wrong thing, right? So authentic guilt is a good thing. It it should, I use the word should, govern our behavior, right? It helps us align our actions with our values. And there's a, there's a tie to guilt. The trait of conscientiousness, which is, one of the biggest measures for those who are successful, right? Conscientiousness, meaning wanting to do things well. Those who are more conscientious tend to be more guilt prone. (laughs) So you want those conscientious people working with you because, hey, they are just, they're more loyal. They really try to uphold the company values and so on and so forth. But they, because they have such standards and they're clear about their standards, they can fall short much more easily, which leaves them feeling guilty. I haven't measured up. I haven't done enough. So the upside is, number one, those who are more guilt prone probably do have higher levels of conscientiousness. They are better to be in relationship with, (laughs) you know, the person who wants to do the right thing um, is the person, yeah, you'd rather be with, right? The friend that's going to be more loyal, the partner who is not going to cheat. So there, it's good, It's a strength until you overuse it. And it's not about what you're actually doing wrong. It's about a feeling, Mm -hmm. a feeling that's false. Right. It's good. Good to know there are some benefits of it. It's good guilt. (laughs) Good guilt, yes. I like it. And and another thing that I love about your book is it's not just about letting go of the guilt. You said that before, but it's actually about reclaiming joy. And you you really end the book on happiness and, okay, so we release this guilt, but how do we reclaim our joy? Can you talk through some of the tactics that you talk about in the book? Because I know Leah and I could probably go on and on about some of those that we love. (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm, all my books have really been on positive emotional topics, right? And it didn't really occur to me until I started writing. I was like, oh, my gosh, this could get kind of heavy because I interviewed a lot of people for it. I'm like, oh, my, people are crying. I'm coaching them. I'm like, I'm not used to this. And I was like, what is my unique approach? My approach is that guilt dampens your joy. It steals it. So why did I write the book? Because I don't want your joy to be stolen. I want you to get it back. So I talk about in that um, chapter, I talk about happiness triggers which is one of my favorite uh, topics, things you can do very intentionally to 
have more joy in your life. So play is probably one of my favorites because I had to work on play. Uh, because for me, it just didn't come as naturally, <laughs> even, as, even as a kid. I mean, I played, but I was also a serious kid. Um, but we know that play, for one, we have to be fully engaged. We have to be in the moment, which keeps us from multitasking, helps us to get in flow. And try something that you enjoy playing at just for the joy of it, not because you have to be good. Um, because for most of us and anyone listening to this podcast, my guess is there's some things you really need to be good at and you have to perform. You've got to have something in your life that's that's just for joy. It uses a different side of your brain, actually. It makes you better at the things you need to perform well at when you have some things that use a different side of your brain that are just about joy. I was noticing too, um, uh, Jackie and I probably were both about to say this. Our favorite one was anticipation. Oh, Yes. That was such a good one. Can you explain that one and like how people can think about it and plot out what they're anticipating? Did I say play was my favorite or that I just really liked it? You said play was your favorite. Do you want to take that back? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we will allow it. What's your second favorite? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I like them all, but anticipation changed my life at one point. And it is having something to look forward to and being intentional about that. Um, you can get as much joy out of planning a vacation or, or an event as you get out of that event itself. So when we, even if it's the middle of the afternoon and you know, you're going to like my husband and I have been doing the last week, watching the crown on Netflix <laughs> after we put our son to bed and it's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get to see another episode tonight. That sounds so simple, but it actually boosts your positive emotion. So I like, especially, there's one little technique of combining the trigger of anticipation with the happiness trigger of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And that is changing your have to, all the stuff you have to do to get to, right? Something you can actually look forward to, but it also is an opportunity to show that you're grateful. So you don't have to work tomorrow. You get to work tomorrow. It's a lot of people that would love to be able to say that, right? You don't have to go grocery shopping, you get to go grocery shopping, although I recommend you do it online. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what does that mean? That means that you have the resources mm -hmm. to get what you need. It's so easy to take things for granted, but I love that combining anticipation with gratitude. Yeah, I, I will say I have been applying the anticipation trigger since reading your book, since finishing the book. And at first it was about some longer term things like I'm, you know, traveling in a few weeks. I'm excited for that. When I come back, we rented a house for a week. We have that. But then I started waking up in the morning and saying, what am I excited about today? What am I looking forward to today? And it has really just gotten me up on a very positive note. And and I, I do a daily gratitude practice at the end of my day, um, every day gratitude. I started practicing religiously on a daily um, basis in 2017, and it changed my life, like completely changed it around. But in any event, the anticipation, it's already worked. And so I'm, I'm excited to continue doing it because I, I can see such such goodness coming out of it. Yeah. You just look at things differently. Like I can look at my schedule and go, I don't have to do any of this stuff. I get to do it. It's just a different way of looking at it and being intentional about noticing, you know what, you've worked for a lot of things in your life and it's very easy to get there. We get on that hedonic treadmill as the positive psychologists call it. 
where we adjust to continually improving circumstances and we stop, we start taking them for granted. Gratitude is one of the ways that we can counteract that. Yeah. I, I also do a gratitude practice and it's, it is life changing. So I'm excited to do more anticipation, especially as we, we plot out what 2021 will look like. Yes. Hopefully lots of good things coming, fingers coming, fingers crossed and create, create an amazing year for ourselves. Valerie, I'm even, I'm thinking back to where we started, starting with kind of your purpose and uh, fear of success, fear of failure, finding your purpose, and then, you know, making it to your purpose and feeling guilty and then how to release guilt. Uh, And I'm curious, you know, for our listeners who are just getting to know you, what's a, a final kind of thought you have that you'd like to share with them as they're on their journeys? Well, I think it's very easy for us to focus on the obstacles or the challenges that are right in front of us and to get stuck there. But you cannot forget to look up at the vision, especially when the obstacles are in front of you. Look up at the vision and let it pull you forward. And if you're listening to me and you're thinking, what vision to pull me forward, then there's your answer. What is your vision? What do you want your life and your work to look like? Even if it's not anywhere near there right now, having the vision for it will give you answers as to what the next goals and the next steps should be. Because even if it takes you another five years to get there, wouldn't it be worth it five years from now to be exactly where you want? It's way too easy. And I think we live in a culture that can be so negative for us to just stare at the obstacles, the challenges, the things that are wrong. But you don't, that's not how you get over the the obstacles. Look up at that vision, let it pull you forward. It's not that you're ignoring the obstacles, but you're recognizing this is temporary. This is a season I'm in, or sometimes it's challenges we're going to have to keep dealing with. And you kind of just accept that even if this isn't exactly what I wanted it to be and life hasn't turned out exactly as I planned, I can accept what is and then take charge of the things that I have control over from here forward. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Val. This has been awesome. I'm taking away so many learnings. I know Jackie is fun conversation. I feel like we've had laughs. We've talked about happy stuff. We've talked about hard stuff. And this is kind of like a microcosm of life, right? Um, But I just appreciate having you here with us. Um, And for those of you listening, again, uh, Valerie Burton's an author. She has 13 books. Her most recent one is Let Go of the Guilt. There are many more you can find on Amazon, as well as, Valerie, any other places you want us to share that people can find books? Oh, look, (laughs) Target's doing a big promotion of my book. Of course, Barnes and Noble. Look, we need to keep these bookstores like the brick and mortar ones open. So, if you if you've got a favorite uh, independent bookstore, please uh, support them. And if you go to ValerieBurton.com, we have links to all the different um, stores that are carrying uh, carrying my books. But if the store doesn't have it, ask them to order it. That's something you can always do for your favorite authors because that helps to to create demand. And I also wanted to share Leah because we talked about the self coaching. That if they go to ValerieBurton.com, I've got this free gift, which is the free self-coaching course. So if you want to kind of learn, how do I do this? How do I start asking myself the powerful questions and giving myself the space to get to my answers? I think you'll find that really helpful. Fantastic. Okay, so we can support our local bookstores. That's the first. Um, Support your Barnes & Noble. Support 
uh, wherever you like to go, ask them to order the book uh, and also go to ValerieBurton.com for free self-coaching resources, which is great. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us on the journey. We are wishing you an amazing 2021. And you can find the rest of In the Arena as usual on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play and iHeartRadio. And we will see you next time. Have a great day, everyone. 